VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Episode 109 of The Bowery Boys, building the New York City subway. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With the fourth part in our summer-long mini-series on public transportation. Has it only been four? Has it only been four? (laughs) Bowery Boys On The Go has been going for four episodes. We started with the ferry system. Then we went on to the elevated railroad. Last episode, I talked about cable cards and the trolleys. And we are finally here at one of our most requested and most anticipated episodes. And hopefully we don't trip up on the third rail with this one. We are talking, of course, about the birth of the New York City subway. We finally made it underground. If you haven't heard those other episodes, you might want to just take a break and listen to those first because they really do set up this moment. Of course, the New York City subway has been with us for over 105 years. Today, it serves up to 5.1 million people a day. Construction on the subway began in the year 1900 and was completed, the first round of it anyway, in 1904. Just in between those four little years, Tom, the Flatiron Building was built, Ellis Island's new buildings were built at that time, the U.S. Customs House, Macy's, the Williamsburg Bridge, the Penn Station Tunnels began at this time. It's a very potent moment in New York City at this time. And of course, the New York City subway would, of course, become one of the greatest municipal projects the city has had ever done to that time. And also at this time, the the commuter situation was exploding, as we'll get to in a second. There were hundreds of thousands of people arriving every day on both sides of the islands on ferries and from the north on train. Truly, something had to be done. So stay with us as we talk about how the idea of a subway finally broke through. So, stand clear of the closing doors as we pull off on a history of building New York City's subway. Well, Greg, before we just go straight underground, maybe you could help us stand back for a second and see how we got to this moment. What, sure. What's been going on? Sure. As a matter of fact, let me take you to... I'm just picking a, a year at random here. In fact, I'm going to pick the year 1894, because that's 10 years before the New York City subway opens. would be completed. So what was it like in terms of transportation? Now, I'm sure... All of you are delighted and want to hear me continue talking about horses and how dirty the city was with horse-drawn cars. Right. Some of those cars were on rails, you know. (laughs) 
But in fact, I won't continue with that, but you, but those, those are still going on. Thousands and thousands of horse-drawn vehicles are still happening. The only true rapid transit that the city is experiencing right now is, of course, those elevated railroads that are going up four avenues, and of course, various avenues in Brooklyn as well. At this time, you have streetcar lines, of course, the horse-drawn, but then cable cars and trolleys are very popular at this time and coming in. The cable cars would, of course, go by the wayside, and trolleys would become the dominant brand of transportation. As they switch to electricity as the power? Correct, around the 1890s. Along the west side of Manhattan, you would, of course, have steam engines that would be going up and out of Manhattan. And you could also catch one of those steam trains at Grand Central, which is up at 42nd Street. Not quite yet the Grand Central Terminal that we know, of course. Right, that would come about 20 years later. And these trains would be going north from Grand Central. Of course, in all our future boroughs here in the Bronx and in Queens, um, they would also have many other steam engine opportunities there, and particularly the Long Island Railroad. Now, by 1894, a lot of these companies, the trolley companies and the elevated companies, would be consolidated into just a few umbrella corporations. Like, for instance, in 1891, those elevated trains that we spent a lot talking about a couple episodes ago. Um, Those would be combined into the Manhattan Railway Company, as we said, that was owned by Jay Gould and his progeny. The Manhattan Trolley System would also have a similar situation going on where a couple major major companies would control all the trolley lines. Transit presidents, the people who own these, would become super powerful men in New York City and would have a lot of uh, financial backers and would have a lot of connections into political parties and political machines, of course. And the future of transportation in New York City was were basically beholden to their whims. And even if people had been floating the idea of subways, because a subway had opened in, in London in the 1860s, so the idea was out there, was being floated around, and one was in the process of being built in Boston and also in Paris at the time. So, of course, the question remains, why wasn't it happening in New York? And like you said, these powerful men had powerful connections in Tammany Hall and up in Albany, who were squashing these efforts. They basically squeezed it out. So if you wanted to build a subway underground, the best way to do it is just don't tell them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that did happen. Well, so that takes us to, I guess, a sort of footnote in subway history or a sidebar in subway history. We could literally actually cut it out and forget it because it doesn't have a lot of influence, but it's a super fascinating tale. It's in fact the tale of the Beach Pneumatic Tube Subway. Now, this takes place actually in 1869 and 1870, 30 years before the construction of New York Subway. It is one of the stranger episodes in New York's (laughs) transportation history because an entire subway line was constructed without the city's knowledge. And it was constructed like a block away from the city hall. city hall, exactly. Well, Alfred Beach was an inventor. He invented a sort of typewriter and a newspaper publisher. He was a co-owner of the New York Sun and an engineer. He was a real personality and he was really into the idea of pneumatic movement and how these tubes worked. Now, he had an office because he had the office downtown at the Sun facing City Hall and he lived up on West 20th Street. It would take him about an hour to get between his house and his office and he just knew something had to be done. It just took way too long to get to work. He had seen how with pneumatic tubes, that is, tubes that have a lot of pressurized air in them and a little compartment that's pushed back and forth by the compressed air, like at the bank. Yes, we had we talked about it in the elevated railroad. There was an idea that right. an, elevated, an elevated railroad would have this similar idea. It was discarded. Right. And he wanted to go underground with the same idea. 
1867, at the American Institute Fair, which was on 14th Street at the Armory, he actually built and demonstrated a six-foot diameter car inside a tube that held 10 people. So he kind of made one of these pneumatic people movers Mm -hmm. and moved them in his test tube, if you will, from 14th Street (laughs) up to 15th Street. And they just kind of shot back and forth. And it was sort of literally almost like with a fan. Yes, there was a giant fan inside. That's what powered it. Very fancy. Well, it was a hit with the public at the armory. So he thought, why not do the same thing underground? It worked. The only problem was that his chances of actually building something like this were really slim because he refused to play Boss Tweed's game. And there was no way he was going to get permission because he wasn't, he wasn't going to incorporate Tweed and the gang into what he was doing. No. And Tweed was controlled by all the streetcar and the, the elevated lines as well. So they, he was getting kickbacks from them. So why in the world would he allow some guy to build a subway right, underground? Right, of course. So in 1868, Beach actually got a bill passed through Tweed for the construction of a, quote, pneumatic mail tube system mm. under Broadway. He just called it something else. So all he was just going to do was take a normal mail tube and just expand it to the size of a human body. Yeah, he and didn't say how big the mail was. <laughs> well, you can use put mail, but you can also Absol- put... A- you could put a mailman in there. <laughs> Upholstered furniture and, and the like. You Maybe know. it was a pneumatic mailman system. <laughs> but he thought, well, once he like moved all these people around, just in an experimental section of Subway, well, there would just be a popular clamor and Tweed would have to give in and grant him the rights. So he rented the basement of a clothing store on Broadway and Murray Street. And from there, he started digging with a big shield. He was pushing forward and his men would clear out the the land behind it. Little by little, they dug 21 feet under Broadway, just to the west of City Hall. And they tunneled out 312 feet of land from Murray Street up to Warren Street. They worked during the nighttime to avoid suspicion. I can't believe how radical and how clandestine this is, because there's literally, this is the heart of the city at this, in, in this right. time period. It's unbelievable. And obviously, there were a lot of policemen around City Hall watching <laughs> his men with these wheelbarrows come out at night and dumping their debris. I can't help but think that people were turning some kind of blind eye to this project. It was a, it was a, winking, a winking project. Like, how's that mail tube going, mm-hmm. Beach? They dug it out in 58 days, bricked the whole thing, and built two stations, including one, I mean, that was really spectacular, you know, with frescoes on the wall and a bubbling fountain and goldfish in an aquarium. And he was, he really? was, he was trying to seduce the public, even with the stations. So when they'd walk in, they'd say, wow, life underground is good. <laughs> And he put a huge fan called the Roots Patent Force Blast Blower um, that could move the car at a rate of 10 miles an hour. And I say the car because it was one car that sat 22 people, and he spent $350,000 on his one-block subway. To move this essentially back and forth. I mean, clearly it, wasn't, yes. it was more of just a just novelty, to, right? right? And also to build support. On February 25th, 1870, he invited journalists and the public to come down and take a ride. The next day, the New York Herald screamed, fashionable reception held in the bowels of the earth. (laughs) But they loved it. At the newspapers published, again, like a block and a half away, right? Yes, across the street. (laughs) Very, very close to the action. So then he went up to the state house because now he had this thing that had popular approval and he wanted to have the authority to build it all over the city. Well, the only problem is that he had double-crossed Boss Tweed Mm -hmm. on this. Still, in 1871, the legislature passed the bill, but John Hoffman, the governor, refused to sign it. 
And then a couple years later, there was new governor, John Dix. He did push it through, granted Beach the rights, but the project languished because he didn't have any money. Well, and as we'll, as we'll find out, you need a lot of investment. You need a lot of really stuffed pockets in order to get one of these really off the ground. And he didn't have it. At the end, he didn't. So Beach's attempt here at building a conveyance under the ground is literally, like, historically in a vacuum. It didn't really affect any plans later. A vacuum in a pneumatic <laughs> tube? And the, um, in fact, the, you know, the holes would cut, was covered up, and later they discovered it, and then they demolished it again, I believe. So, <laughs> While building the real subway. I yeah. mean, the, the, real, the real issue here is that these trolley lines, these elevated lines, all had real power. And Albany, you're not going to get these things push through and have a lot of municipal support the only way you're going to do it you're gonna it's gonna basically be two things the city is going to have to be so crowded and traveling is just going to be so difficult that you're going to be forced to look at this as as a possible alternative and then of course number two you just need a powerful man or two mm-hmm. or three who's going to stand up and and say well you know what i think this is a good idea the city actually had a couple of these. The first one was a man by the name of Abram Hewitt. Now, Abram was born in 1822. Does that name sound familiar to you? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think I know that name. Well, he's called the father of the subway, and that's appropriate because his father-in-law was Peter Cooper, who, of course, helped revolutionize steam power. Of course, Peter Cooper, Abram Hewitt, this is a very influential family. Their names live on today in the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum, yes. Hewitt was a a close friend of the Cooper family. In fact, Peter's friend Edward and he were very close friends. He, of course, married into the family. Abram was elected mayor of New York City in 1886. Now, he was in his 60s by this time. He was a very wealthy man. Although he was a Democrat, and although he actually had Tammany Hall support when he got elected, he rejected their advances by this time because it was very popular to be, of course, a reformist mayor, even if you were part of Tammany, because, of course, the whole boss tweed stench was still on politicians, mm-hmm. especially Democrats at this time. He really came to view a lot of this overcrowding as a menace, not only to the residents, but as to the reputation of New York itself as being a world city. He felt that if he didn't do something about this overcrowding, that the middle classes and the upper classes were going to ship out of New York and they weren't mm-hmm. going to live here, live there. And all the innovation that made New York City would, of course, leave as well. And it would just become a city for the impoverished? There are several large cities in this world that are basically cities of the impoverished. So okay, yes, he, 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 wanted, he thought that that's what might happen. So he actually had a rapid transit proposal himself, something that would sweep up from southern Manhattan up to the Bronx. The city would pay for it, but a private company would build it and maintain it. Uh, the city hall would essentially own it, of course. During his tenure, and what sort of helped shape this idea is something I mentioned in the last show, which is the blizzard of 1888, which stopped traffic, which stopped communications. And, you know, if they'd had an underground line, they probably would have experienced delays because of a blizzard as well, but it still would have been able to operate. Though some of us who take the F train would beg to differ about the um, subway's capacities during well, snowstorms. Well, this is in theory, as we know in practice, sometimes the slightest rainstorm can stop the entire subway <laughs> system. Now, anyway, this plan by Hewitt was canned because there just wasn't a lot of political support for it, and the Democratic Party was very, very split at that time. And of course, Jay Gould and the Vanderbilt family were all very powerful, and they didn't really like this as an idea. It mm-hmm. was infringing on their territory. Now, a little bit later, in 1891, another man sort of came up to the rich and powerful with, an, with this idea, and his name was William Steinway. 
of the piano fame? Uh, one and only. In fact, William Steinway is the son of Henry Steinway, who, of course, started the Steinway piano business. And I have an entire podcast on. Now, the Steinways, of course, a powerful family in Queens County. They actually were civic leaders in their own right. They owned a lot of land out there, uh, owned horse card lines. In fact, the Steinways even helped to develop a, tr- a transit infrastructure in Queens County. In fact, going so far as commissioning a tunnel that was built under the East River in 1892, which would come to be known as the Steinway Tunnel and would eventually be incorporated into the future subway. Now, he latched onto some of this post-Hewitt support in forming what was called the Steinway Commission, which also planned an underground subway system. It was even more sophisticated than what uh, Hewitt had even suggested. The flaw of the plan was that he thought it should be entirely built and operated by a third party, by an independent company. Which isn't too surprising, because that's how so many of the elevateds were operated. Well, and, you know, people at the time thought that really the city didn't have authority to do that kind of thing. Less government. Yes. He tried getting, you know, someone to jump on board to this idea. He talked to the elevated companies. They balked. He talked to streetcar companies. Nope, they weren't taking it. This was way too ambitious, of course. No one latched onto the plan, and ultimately, it flopped. And, of course, the big nail in the coffin, because of constant financial panics, there's another one in 1893 that slows things down even further. Now, while this was, of course, politically unfeasible, it was actually gaining a groundswell of popular support. And people were actually really excited about this. And labor groups were excited about it because it was like, that's thousands and thousands of brand new jobs that you bring into the city if you're going to build this. Not to mention people just wanted a subway. They were sick and tired of being crammed into elevateds and trolley cars and all the rest. European cities had subways, and, and New York wanted to be like a European city. So in 1894, the state actually passes the Rapid Transit Act, which creates a commission, the Rapid Transit Commission, which will actually craft an official plan on how to build a subway. And they actually use Abram Hewitt's template in doing this, a plan that would, quote, sell the franchise or provide for ownership by the city, unquote. Now, there was a borrowing limit imposed upon the city because they could spend up to $50 million, but no more mm-hmm. on this particular... Uh, so that's very limited. Well, obviously, it's going to take more than $50 million to buy all the land and to construct and then run a subway. Well, and, yeah, so there was this notion that like, well, there's going to be fares. And even at this time, they knew it was going to be a five-cent fare. That, with that in mind, they were like, it's going to generate revenue on its own. So you have a $50 million limit. The voters of New York City confirmed this in November 6, 1894, when two-thirds of the city voted overwhelmingly to approve this measure. So on the table was this, a creation of a subway system that would stretch from one corner of the city to the other. Now, being, of course, pre-consolidated New York, this literally just meant the south-southern tip of Manhattan to the Annex District that would become the Bronx. So it only included this area. And they would succeed in doing that. When the subway would open 10 years later, that's basically what the route was. Now, so it sounds good, right? But it takes a few years to really get this started. First of all, Tammany Hall's not into this, of course. So during this time, a lot of Democrats sweep in. So there's, there's like two or three years in which like nothing is done on this. In fact, they tried to overturn it or slow the work down, essentially. But by 1899, we're back on track. Yes, in 1899, the RTC opens up the process for bids. As you said, they had sort of like their rules for the game. They needed this contractor to come in to Mm -hmm. build the subways for the city and then have the exclusive rights 
to run them for this set period of time. They only had two bidders for this project. Which is, which is more than Steinway had, certainly. They at least had two. Yeah, at least two. And the winner was a man named John McDonald. So it was set to be old McDonald's Railway. <laughs> E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> now, McDonald was an, a logical choice because he was an experienced construction contractor and engineer. He helped build the Croton Dam, which resulted in New York getting its drinking water. Mm-hmm. He also had railroad experience. He built uh, tracks and tunnels for the New York Central Railroad and also the Baltimore and Ohio. But perhaps most importantly, he had connections in Tammany Hall. He was very well connected. He knew how it worked. And also his friends in the legislature knew that any kind of project like this meant lots of jobs for their voters and also lots of potential for kickbacks. So they signed the deal in 1900, signed the contract, which agreed to build, equip, and operate the railway for a period of 50 years. Uh, the contractor paid for the rights to build it, but the city would then provide the, the builder with millions for the construction itself, and that would all get paid back over the course of the contract. Hmm. So that McDonald would then have to pay like a, a yearly... Franchise fee. Which would pay off the loan for sure, the construction. But he would get to keep all those nickels. Mm-hmm. But McDonald had one problem, and it's the same problem that we keep running into here with all of these other gentlemen. He didn't have enough money to pull this thing off. The initial investment. He couldn't start it. Right. He couldn't find the $7 million to pay to the city for the construction rights. So without the money, he sort of defaulted on his contract, and the contract then was assigned to August Belmont. Uh I was going to say, this is 1900. There's certainly a a few rich men Lying around here and there in New York, and August Belmont is certainly a rich one. Now, I'm talking about August Belmont II. He was a wealthy banker. He was the head of the August Belmont and Company banking firm, so the son of the original August Mm -hmm. Belmont. Now, of course, this is the Belmont that, of course, is best known for his racetrack. So the city provided Belmont with $36.5 million for the construction, plus $1.5 million to buy land for the stations. Now, Belmont, of course, was just a financial guy here. He was mm-hmm. sort of the, the face of the subway. But he needed people to actually... Well, he needed brains behind the, behind the dollars, right? Absolutely. So he hired John McDonald back to run the project because he knew what he was doing. And McDonald would run the operations throughout the construction of the subway. Mm-hmm. He also hired William Barclay Parsons. Now, Parsons was a great character. He had been named the head of the RTC... He would be the chief designer and the engineer throughout the construction. He was the man that actually thought through the entire design of the subway, the entire length of it. All the elements, even down to the station and how the tracks would be laid out. And how it would be supported and everything. So Parson was the chief designer and engineer, and McDonald was the day-to-day guy. So you basically had these three men who were the point people in creating the first subway. Belmont, McDonald, and Parsons. Mm-hmm. Immediately after signing the contract, Belmont formed two companies, the Rapid Transit Subway Construction Company, a real mouthful, Mm -hmm. which would oversee the construction of the actual subway, and then the Interboro Rapid Transit Company, which we know as the IRT, which would run the subways once the whole shebang was constructed. And what it would actually be known as once it started running. So on March 24th, just one month after signing the contract, there was a major celebration that was held at City Hall. 25,000 people gathered. John Philip Sousa himself was there leading marches. How festive. And at one point, fireworks, great fireworks rained down 
thousands of miniature American flags onto the crowd. Mayor Robert Van Wick presided over the event, and he even had a little silver spade that was designed by Tiffany and Company, which, with which he shoveled out some dirt and kicked off the construction. Which I find kind of funny, because Van Wick was, of course, a little anti-subway. He was part of that Tammany like anti-subway push. And well, so, maybe he was pro Tiffany picks. <laughs> pro Tiffany, it was that Tiffany silver that did, that got him to change his mind. I'm sure. <laughs> On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Two days later, on March 26, 1900, the construction began. So what does that mean, the construction? Like, how do you, if you're a city dweller, how do you wrap your head around the idea of, like, over 20 miles of underground track Mm. are going to be built? Now, the city is not unfamiliar with this kind of excavation work. I mean, they obviously had burial of water pipes and wires, and, of course, the cable cars and the trolleys had to, you know, lay their lines as well. But this is, like, a systematic interruption of road service all along through the heart of the city, which, which of course, would be for four years. Right. Work actually began that March. They started on the north end first. They started up in Washington Heights, uh, where, of course, having a subway would, of course, be even more crucial because there's just less ways to get around places and to get to the heart of the city. We'll break down the specific route here a little bit later in the podcast. I won't do it right now. Now, who built it? Of course, it was the, some of the finest engineers that the world had to offer. Of course, Belmont could hire all these wonderful, great names, of course. But the sort of grunt work, the day-to-day laborers... Mm. It was Irish, Italians. It basically echoed the ethnic makeup of immigrants. There were a lot of black laborers as well. Believe it or not, with this opportunity for new jobs, a lot of people from out of state, from rural New Jersey and New York and beyond. I even read one source that said it was kind of like a gold rush for jobs. Like as people, people flocked to the city. And there were. There were like thousands and thousands of and jobs. And it was backbreaking work, too, for which they were not being paid handsomely. For skilled labor, it would be $3.75 a day for skilled, and it'd be like half of that for unskilled labor, for work that was rather, you know, life-threatening. Now, of course, the primary foe for building a subway through a very crowded city would not actually be the traffic above, but the rocks below it. Northern Manhattan is made out of what's called dolomitic marble, but most of Manhattan has what's called Manhattan schist, which is a very dense, very difficult rock to have to dig through if you're trying to plow through it. 
Although it's wonderful for constructing skyscrapers atop. Beneficial in those ways, but not if you're trying to dig through it. Now, so Parson was looking at like how to best go about doing this. And he looked at international cities who already had subways and how they did it. He looked at London, which had the first subway system. He looked at Budapest, which had the second system. And even Glasgow, believe it or not, has the third oldest subway system in Mm. the world. He decided to go with what they were doing in Budapest and Glasgow, which is basically the, quote, shallow excavation technique. Today, we call it the cut and cover. Exactly what it sounds like. You basically rip open the street, you dig down, you construct the concrete foundations, and you put down those tracks, which would be, on average, about 55 feet across in the concrete sidewalls, of course, and then you just cover that back up. Sounds pretty easy, right? Sure, sounds like a breeze. (laughs) And to think that 30 years prior, Beach was just tunneling 21 feet underneath Broadway. Right. And so th- they were choosing this more sophisticated method, but doing it's it for... simple t- in a way. It is. It seems simple, but here's the problem. It's more expensive. You have to shut down all the traffic that's happening above head. Right. It's dangerous to the pedestrians. It's dangerous to the buildings around that, you know, if it's not done properly, could sort of cave in. It's cumbersome because... You have underneath the ground, you have this tangled network of unplanned sewer lines, water, and gas. A couple pneumatic mail tubes. Perhaps a few. Um, You know, and also schist and, of course, in general, the topography of Manhattan tends to be very unpredictable. And this is an era where we don't have the scientific technique to be able to predict what it's going to be. So, for instance, there would be... I would almost call it bipolar. You would have like impossible to dig through rock. And then like five feet, you would have porous, wet, sandy, soily, kind of like gross quicksand type mix. So what to wear? (laughs) Of course, most difficult is digging when, of course, you're right next to or even having to cross paths with a trolley line or an elevated line, of course. Did they continue to run the trolleys on those same streets? There was interruption of service, but of course, up at what you will, which you'll mention in a few minutes, um, up on Forty Second Street, the line actually jogs over. It doesn't go straight north. Right. That actually caused a little bit of a challenge, especially because where it was cutting over, it just happened to cross a path of a new building that was being built at Forty Second and Broadway, a building that would, of course, be the future headquarters of the New York Times, the Times Building. Uh, classic building, of course. The solution was to sort of incorporate subway tunnels alongside the very architecture of the building. So as a result, the Times Building is actually the very first structure built in New York that actually incorporates the subway into its design. In fact, has a subway entrance in the basement. Wow. We should say the Old Times Building. The Old Times Building, correct. Now, while that's going on underground, Belmont's working, of course to get the other lines, the other forms of transportation to sort of work in concert with his new subway. So in 1903, he leases the Manhattan Elevated Railroad. So Uh the the elevated system is under his aegis at this point. It begins operating under a 999-year lease. Good heavens, it's still going. I know, we better better check on that lease. (laughs) So this is a way to make sure that connections worked? Correct. And it's also like a smooth transition into the sort of transit industry because you know, by 1904, Belmont would own all of the rapid transit opportunities that the city would have, both of the above ground and the below ground. So you have all these guys digging underneath the streets. What happens when they can't actually just pick away at it? Well, I mean, this sounds unbelievable, but they use dynamite. 
to crack into a lot in of in the middle rocks. of the city in the middle of the city sometimes like in the middle you know on the, on park avenue they're like they're lighting dynamite so imagine if you live around the corner and you're trying to have a little quiet meal at home and all of a sudden it's like a war zone outside and i then, imagine that there were some accidents unfortunately yes um i should mention a man by the name of Ira Shaler. He was actually Parsons' closest friend, and he was the engineer that was responsible for the for the tunneling here at Park Avenue between 23rd and 42nd. I mentioned him because he would get an unfortunate nickname. They would call him the Voodoo Contractor because there would be a bizarre number of accidents under his watch. On January 27th of, of 1902, one of his employees would be cold outside. Uh, he would go and warm his hands in a shed. Shed just happened to be filled with dynamite. He left his little blaze running and the shed exploded. It was a huge explosion. It did its permanent damage to a hotel. It actually... Where was this shed? The shed was at 41st and Park. Six people died. Over 125 people were injured. Shaler was actually indicted for manslaughter because of this, even though it was his employee that actually had done this like absurd deed. And unfortunately, a little bit later, Shaler himself is killed in a, in a cave-in right in front of Parsons' own eyes mm. as this is being done. So it's very grim, very, very dangerous work. In fact, the deadliest accident was actually a year later up near Washington Heights in October of 1903, a huge cave-in that basically killed 10 people, and it was a scene of such total mayhem and really shocked people and grabbed the headlines and really shook people. It seems like that could almost be enough to turn the public against the whole project in the first place. They're being inconvenienced all the time. They can't go up the street. There's so so many opinions about the subway, and people are just, they're antsy about it. They've lived with it for three years by this time. There's some mounting fears already about the subway. Merchants were upset, of course. It has taken years. People in the newer neighborhoods were very impatient because they moved up here with this promise of this subway and it still wasn't built by this time. And there probably are also people who are even thinking that they don't want to be underground. There are some serious concerns about suffocation. There was even like there were even articles that like the air would actually be poisonous, that you would be strangulated the moment that you went under the ground. It sounds ridiculous to us today, but I mean, if you had never been under the ground and people weren't doing this, I mean, this was kind of scary. It's a little weird if you think about how much time we spend under the earth. And we also have the benefit of modern air conditioning today. We have a lot of conveniences that they didn't have back then. So the IRT had to actually go on the offensive with this, with, with an ad campaign that, was, uh, that actually said, quote, Subway air as pure as your home, which I'm thinking <laughs> in like 19... 19- well, considering <laughs> where some of those homes were. I don't know, I don't know how pure that would actually be, <laughs> but... The next campaign after that, because after they were getting people warmed up and more comfortable with the idea, they also wanted the idea of it being a fast, efficient ride to be in the forefront of people's minds. So they also had another slogan that claimed, quote, to Harlem in 15 minutes. And in fact... The very first ride when there were no you know difficulties would in fact get up to, you know yeah, to Harlem in that time basically would be on schedule. Now before we finally get to the, to opening day and the the completion of these tracks, of course there's there's a couple crucial elements here that we really need to discuss first, and one of them of course is the cars themselves because right. of course this is a very new concept the idea of these of these trains you can't just take a normal train car and just plop it into the ground. Right. These were not the same cars that were on the elevated or as trolleys. The company that they used for the very first set of cars was a 
company called Wason, which is based in Springfield, Massachusetts, they had designed what was called the composite car because it was made of wood and steel. They were very attractive cars. A wood car. A wooden, a wooden car. It had a, a white exterior with some dark red paint and touches. 51 feet long, 12 feet high, with 52 seats inside with a kind of material on them, hanging lamps. Oh, they are han- they're handsome cars. They are they're very handsome. Very, very robust. Yes. And with those little lights atop the passenger seats. It's almost like you could eat like little sandwiches or something on them. Like they're Absolutely. very proper. Hardwood floors, windows that opened and closed had their own little shades, bronze fixtures throughout, leather straps for the standing passengers. They were very smart cars. Very, it's nicer than in my apartment. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thanks. So the Wayson Company made two of these and sent them to the city and in a sort of PR maneuver. They also called the two cars, one the August Belmont and the other the John B. McDonald. As we know from the old, you know, omnibuses and things like that, uh-huh. they, they tend to name these things after the people who've got the money and pulling the strings. Or crackers. <laughs> or crackers. In 1903, the city then approved these and ordered a whole fleet of these composite cars. They'd remain in use until 1916 when the last cars were sent to the Elevated to run. So in total, there were 2,500 of these composite cars that ran in the New York City subways. Now, at the same time, it wasn't just all composite cars, because despite the smart look of these things, the IRT knew that they also needed more cars, and that maybe those composite cars, these wooden cars, wouldn't really hold up very well in the case of a crash. Right. So they designed their own steel cars um, and tested those out in 1904 and had those up and running at the same time as the composites. So those were the cars. Now, a whole separate issue was how to get power down in the subway. Into the tracks, sure. Absolutely, because this was an electrified railway underground. They decided that they weren't going with steam like in London. They were going to go electricity. Now, they had their own separate power station for these, correct? Eventually, they did. But in the months that were leading up to the actual launch of the subway, Mm -hmm. in January of 1904... They were taking all of these test rides with the mayor and dignitaries and McClellan and Belmont. And all of these test rides were without electricity. One was like Mm. pulled by something else. One was a steam engine. Finally, in September of 1904, electricity was flowing for the very first time into the rails and powering the trains. And that's because they had opened up a power plant at 58th and 11th Avenue. Oh, okay. Built specifically for the IRT. And this plant was also getting electricity from an enormous coal-powered plant that was up on the North River, which was producing the electricity for the entire subway system. At the time, it was actually the largest electricity plant in the country. Well, it is this huge, beautiful, industrial style. It's almost like from a German expressionist movie. It's got these huge... Metropolis? Yes, it does. It's amazing. So that's sort of a recap of the... Ugly interior, the inside machinations uh-huh. of the subway. Can you perhaps tell us what was happening outside for oh, the well, public to see? Because it was very, very pretty on the outside. Because, Tom, it is city beautiful movement mm. action happening right here. Of course, not only is a, this is a city in the throes of this beautification project, but it's also in the middle of Beaux-Arts architectural styles. You know, the only problem was that this is a very different kind of a building, an underground subway station. I mean, there are very few examples to actually take from 
you couldn't just borrow from the Romans underground subway station? That, yeah, that would have been a very poor idea. They had a couple of architects that we've actually mentioned on the show before. Heinz and Lafarge. Mm-hmm. We mentioned them just a few episodes ago as the designers of the Astor Court in the Bronx Zoo, which is, of course, was opening around this period as well. The interiors, of course, are these usual glamorous, ornate works that are, of course, familiar with this, uh, with this particular era. Ornate tiles, chandeliers... City Hall Station, which is, of course, no longer open today, but it's, uh, it was sort of the, the diamond of the whole system. It would be the most ravishing and the most beautiful. It would have a beautiful vaulted ceiling and gorgeous tiles. Um, and I believe it is still sometimes open for tours. It is. You can actually get a tour. Th- I believe the New York Transit Museum does tours of that, but it's no longer open. If I could just read from the official souvenir yes. program of the IRT. For once, beauty has been made the handmaid of a great municipal undertaking. Colored tiles decorate the walls, letters and symbols in every corner, in every detail, assist the traveler in the detection of the numbers and names of the station at which he is alighting. Pottery, faience, that being glaze work, faience, and marble are used in numberless tints and designs. Glass roofs give the stations plenty of light, which is diffused from the glazed tiles in various decorations. So a very hazy gorgeousness to all these different stations. Now that sounds more beautiful than your apartment. That is definitely more beautiful. Now, of course, less beautiful would be the little ticket booths that would be in here that would take the tickets, which in the early days would not be tokens. It would be tickets. But, of course, they would be five cents. The, the booths would be of oak, and they would sometimes have bronze window grills, of course. Right. Um, now, the exteriors outside would be something I found really interesting and curious. This is the one part of the subway that people would live with and see every day. So Parsons actually took cues from this Budapest subway station. I mean, he not only took the idea of the underground, but he even took this a d- design feature. But because in London, decades earlier, they had actually built these giant... They're like train stations, th- yes. Exactly. So you'd walk and you'd see a huge street-level reception area. So he would actually use this Hungarian kiosk design. In fact, if you go to Astor Place today, it's one of the two places in New York that you can actually see excellent examples of this. And it almost has like a Persian summer home type of feel to it. It was also very helpful, by the way, the sort of curves of this particular design helps with rainwater so they wouldn't go down into the stations and they wouldn't have quite as much issues with, uh, with flooding. They also, of course, had these control houses, which would be a little bit larger structures, and they would have them at various points along the way. The best one that's still in the city today that was actually built in 1904 is up on 72nd Street and Broadway, which they call Sherman Square. It's a not a great station. It is beautiful and it's and one of the recently cl- redone and it's one of the cl- it's like a classical building in the sort of beaux-arts style it's actually a flemish renaissance style mm. more specifically they really did it up to attract people and to make it make it feel like it was a clean and a gorgeous place to travel and so it's all ready and waiting for the population they just need to open it so what, <laughs> just when, open the thing <laughs> open it we actually sidestepped our discussion about the actual route of the subway now mm-hmm. this is what i find fascinating because we know these subway routes today. The original route of the subway started with a loop under City Hall itself, a single lane loop. There it expanded to four tracks. Those went in parallel, obviously, under Park Row, then Center Street, Lafayette, then 4th Avenue, and Mm -hmm. up to Park Avenue. They continued up Park Avenue, making either local or express stops. That was the benefit of having those 
four tracks. Right. And these were this was even the days before it was called Lafayette Street. Even parts of it weren't even created yet. So it was but it was basically that pathway up to the old Grand Central Terminal. And then it turned westward underneath Grand Central and headed down 42nd Street all the way to Broadway and Times Square. There it made a turn. And by the way, Times Square at the time was not really that it was nothing, right. right? It was a local stop on this old train. But, so. you could, but you could certainly say that having this major stop there, of course, helped impro- make it improved its chances. So then it turned northward on Broadway, and it continued all the way up to 145th Street. Now, 15 blocks after the 125th Street station, they actually had to construct the subway above ground because uh, the island dips down into what is called Manhattan Valley, and it mm-hmm. would have been way too expensive and complicated to actually bore down into that rock. So that's why, passengers, you're above ground after At 125th. That point, right. At 96th Street, one of those tracks actually veers off to the east and leaves the other three. Hmm. It splits off, goes to the east, cuts through Central Park, and heads up to Lenox Avenue and goes up to the Bronx. Oh, okay. So they actually had a subway line at the time that cut from the (laughs) west side across Central Park to the east. Yeah, that is fascinating. And that was the line that people could ride in 1904. And that was the only line. That was it. That was it. They would expand 145th Street. They'd, They'd take it further up north in the coming years after opening. Now, the opening day was October 27th, 1904. At 1 p.m., hundreds gathered at City Hall to hear speeches from city officials, including, of course, Mayor McClellan. Needless to say, Belmont, Parsons, McDonald, the, the whole group Were there. was there. Mm-hmm. But you know who was not there is Abram Hewitt, who had died the year before. So the father of the subway was not there to actually see the subway on its opening day. So there were speeches and such. At 2 p.m., Belmont handed McClellan a small case containing a silver throttle made, of course, by (laughs) Tiffany. Yet another another Tiffany accessory. The mayor thereby proclaimed the subway open. The whole group moved from City Hall down into the City Hall subway station. There were more than 200 dignitaries. Can you just imagine them all in their best clothing? Their fineries and their top hats. With their hats, hats. yes, exactly. Dignitaries, financiers, the Wall Street tycoons, and the the robber barons who had financed this whole Mm -hmm. thing. And some journalists. There were five cars in total. Mm -hmm. McClellan, of course, was in the front. He posed in the conductor's little station there in the very front of the train. He was a poser. He posed for photographs. Mm -hmm. He put his little silver throttle into position. And after the flash cubes had died down, he decided to take that little train for a ride. Now, he was just supposed to kind of do a ceremonial tug and get the thing moving. There was, in fact, a conductor and an engineer right next to him to take this very important first ride. Sure, this is only a photo op. At 2.35, the train pulled out of the station, and the mayor, kind of like a child, really, who was just in control and powering a new toy, was mad with curiosity just to see (laughs) how fast this thing would go. And with hundreds of people on board, the train raced uptown through the tunnel, jerking here and there, achieving speeds of 45 miles an hour. At one point, he accidentally pulled the emergency brake, which threw everybody for another (laughs) loop. And he took it like that raced it all the way up to 103rd Street. I'm glad Wow. I'm glad that it stayed on the tracks <laughs> when it did that little yeah. bend at Grand Central Station. 
finally at 103rd Street, he surrendered control to an engineer next to him. How crazy. Who finished the ride up to 145th Street, and they got there in 26 minutes, in fact. Oh, that's amazing. And that, my friends, is how the subway was opened. And that was the very, very first ride on the subway. And that was at 2.35 in the afternoon. The general public wasn't invited in until 7 p.m. And tens of thousands poured in. In fact, 150,000 people, they estimate, rode the subway for the very first evening. And it was a mad scene. Well, I mean, that first week, it was already too crowded. Absolutely. The New York Tribune described the scene the next day. They said men fought, kicked, and pummeled one another in their mad (laughs) desire to reach the subway ticket office or to ride the trains. Women were dragged out either screaming in hysterics or in swooning conditions. <laughs> and I have to say, this is a detail from Ellis's The Epic of New York City, which I love. He says, during the confusion, a passenger had his $500 diamond stick pin stolen. It was the city's first subway crime. Oh, of course. One of many. One, <laughs> one of, of many. many. But <laughs> just to kick it off with a $500 diamond <laughs> stick pin on opening day. And to say that it was a hit with the public is an understatement. In the subsequent days, about 300,000 people a day were trying to get onto this route. And in fact, on Sunday, a million people tried to take Ugh. a Sunday ride on this new subway. <laughs> so like- <laughs> the, like the thought of the public sort of paranoid about poison dare didn't really materialize. Sounds like a good day to ride the elevated, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the benefit, of course, of this, of uh, everything along the route of this subway over the next coming months would greatly develop the Upper West Side would right. blossom of course everything along Lenox Avenue in Harlem would greatly developed as this got more successful it only benefited areas that were people were already basically living and would of course improve those areas but there were many areas of Manhattan that were still being left out particularly the Upper East Side, right. they weren't very happy Nothing. by this at all. And, oh yeah, should I remind us that, of course, there are other boroughs by this time that are not even being serviced by this. Brooklyn and Queens, of course, and most of the Bronx. So for the next show, because this is, we have to wrap up this, this was literally the birth of the subway, but there's many more stories involving the expansion of the subway. Next time, we're going to tackle how this went from a, a line of a couple dozen miles to hundreds of of miles of tracks. This will involve a, basically an evolved way of thinking on how to pay for these massive projects. And we'll also mention a very curious twist here that will actually be very influential to the development of the subway. It involves the actual price of the fare, hmm. which we'll get into a little bit later. And I also just have to tip my hat to that number six train. So if you happen to be listening to this and you're on the six train right now and you're in that original stretch headed up to Grand Central, or if you're on the one that's heading uptown, you're on the original line. And that's why you're so close to the street level. And that's also why you might get cell phone reception. (laughs) I suggest you come to our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We'll have several photographs of the construction of the subway, some of the early subway stations, and also visit us on our Facebook page where we're we're having conversations and I'm posting little extra videos. And of course, by now you actually do have small silent films, very early films that were actually done in the subway, which I'll put in there as well. So thank you for joining us on a ride through New York City's subway history. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.